Today, we're looking at um, Matthew 11:25 through 30, although for our text, we are going to start at verse 20 today, but we're going to read these five verses. Uh, Matthew 11:25 through 30, if you don't have it in your Bibles, you can read in the center of your bulletin. Let's read together. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that our hearts would be focused, our minds would be free of distraction, that we would hear what you are saying this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. And actually, I'm going to back up to verse 20, and you can follow that along, because the title of the message today would be The Denunciation and the Declaration of the King. Understand that as the kingdom has now dawned, it is now entering. Um, it, it is now, when it says at hand, it's, it's, it's there. The kingdom of God is now entering because the king is there, and we saw from our previous text that the transition has already happened because John culminated that which was considered the old covenant. John was the culmination of that, which is why he was the greatest born of a woman or the greatest human in a long line of prophets. John was the greatest because he actually got the opportunity to physically introduce the Savior, the Messiah. But then we also learn that the, those that are in the kingdom that has now dawned and those who will come later as a part of the kingdom, that they are even greater than John. Why? Because they get to represent, they get to introduce the king and they get to understand and enjoy the kingdom greater than he did. He just saw its introduction. You and I get to live in it. And so Christ says, the greatness of John is defined by the fact that he gets to introduce and represent Jesus or the Messiah. What makes you and I greater is that we get to represent and live for Jesus. And so the greatness does not lie with you and I. There isn't anything that you do, that I do, that, you know, that, that, that actually makes us great just in and of itself. It is who we are proclaiming that makes it great and that we are representing and enjoying that kingdom. So, yes, you and I, as followers of Christ, are greater than John the baptizer. That is exactly what scripture says. But he says, don't let that greatness go to your head because you're only great because you are talking about me. You're only great because you are living for me. You're only great because you're representing me. And that is the context for our greatness. And so when God decides to use you and I, and there are great things that are happening, he says, keep your feet planted. 
Don't go off the edge thinking that you all that. He said, the reason greatness is even talked about with you is because of who you're connected with. And the moment you disconnect yourself from Christ, your greatness ceases. The moment you think you can do it without him, you've lost everything. And so the denunciation and the declaration and both these things, there'll be questions for us to answer about them. This one is a really sad and pitiful statement that Christ makes. And it's also a warning. And it's a warning for those who would follow after as to the consequences that happens when you reject the king. Remember, the kingdom is now here. It's not fully realized. And even today is not fully realized. We know it will be fully realized when Christ returns. But it is here and the reign of God First and foremost is in our hearts. Every king rules. Every king is sovereign over something. And for Christ, where that sovereignty rests right now is in our hearts. But there will be a physical reigning and sovereignty one day as he ushers in the fullness of the kingdom. But right now, where that kingdom is realized is that you bow willingly, humbly, to the knee, you, you, you bow the knee to the sovereign because you recognize his authority. But we all know one day, God says, everyone will recognize it, whether by choice or by force, that everyone will recognize because scripture says every knee will bow. And when he said every, it wasn't every that thinks Jesus is nice. It says every knee will bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. Those that have gone on before us and those that will come after us. Because that is the statement of truth because God has his king over the kingdom and that kingdom is Jesus Christ. And so we see here though that after he, after he now talks about John and he elevates John and he puts John in context, why? Because the people, when they saw and when they heard John's disciples come and kind of question, is Christ really a true Messiah? He didn't want people to start to doubt and to think John had changed his mind about Jesus. John wasn't quite understanding what the Messiah would fully do. He had his own preconceived ideas like we do. So let's not throw John under the bus. He had his preconceived ideas of what a Messiah should be doing. Come on, y'all know we got people out there today that want to tell the church what they should be doing. See now, and, 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 and don't know Christ, but they're going to tell Christ's followers what they should be doing. Now, that doesn't mean that we are doing all that we should be doing. But it is Christ who will give whether or not we are on track or not. But here were people that weren't even receiving Christ. And they were summing up John wrongly, so Jesus corrects them. And then while he's at it, he knows they're summing him up incorrectly too, so he corrects them as well. But then as he finishes correcting society that has evaluated him incorrectly, he turns now and he gives a denunciation. And you have to understand this because, because of whom it is too. He is writing to Jews that should have embraced him because of all that they have heard. All the message, 
all the, all the prophecies, all the things that they've received. For us today, it would be all the word that you get. Everything that God has allowed you to have, that he has given, that has revealed himself out there, he was expecting something to happen, or it was so that something would happen. And when it does not, here is what eventually happens. Look at verse 20 of chapter 11. <clears throat> He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. I'm going to stop right there for a second. Understand that word to denounce. It really is to proclaim. It is a proclamation of either evil actions of life or a disapproval of how someone is living. You are being denounced. He's saying, I do not approve what you are doing or, and, and actually how you are living is not in line with what I want. <clears throat> and so here's he said, he said he was denouncing a group of people, but the group, where this group came from seems to be odd for people that would be denounced. Where is it? He says he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works were done. Some of your translations say miracles. And see, they had seen, they had experienced, they had been eyewitnesses to the miracles of God. And although they could glory in seeing a miracle and can talk about it, and people say, yo, did you see, man, when he, when he, when he healed Jairus' daughter like, like she was dead and he just like spoke the word, he wasn't even there and she came to life, man, you ever seen anything like that? No, I never seen anything like that. And people are glorying in the miracles that are being done. But Jesus is denouncing the people that saw those mighty works and those miracles. And so let's look at just, just, just why, just for a second. And his denunciation comes in the form of what's called a woe. And the woe from Old Testament, it is this combination of doom and pity. It is a statement of impending and guaranteed suffering that is coming. And when you look at the Old Testament, it has woes all over the place. And these are statements of what is going to happen because of however they have been choosing to live. And, and so when, whenever God pronounced a woe on you, it was a woe. Because, man, it was, it was coming. And so Jesus wasn't just unleashing just judgment. It was this, this is going to happen, and I'm so sorry that it's you. And so it is this mixture of doom and pity. Doom because what they have chosen repeatedly to do is bringing them to this point. Pity because they are not going to like it. Okay, parents, that's like you when you pronounce woe on your kids. You don't say, like, boy, when we get home, you're going to get your behind worn out. Impending suffering, doom, and pity. And for many of us, we've been on the receiving end of that. I don't know about you, but anticipation is crazy. I remember sitting in them times in church and, 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 and my mother letting me sit with my friends on the other side of a place bigger than this. And all of a sudden, I get this tap on my shoulder as I'm clowning, and I'm like, who's tapping me? And I look back, 
and, and, and they really were just a conduit. They weren't the focus. What I realized is they were playing the game of telephone. Tap the friend, tap the friend, tap the friend until you get to him. And then I turn and they point. And when they point and I look over and I saw her eyes, I was like, whoa. Now, this was a small, you know, inconsequential compared to what Jesus is talking about. Whoa. But you get the point. It was this impending doom and suffering. And Jesus goes to the people, here is Jesus comes to the people who heard the word the most. Who saw the demonstration of his power the most. These are the people that got a clear revelation of who Jesus is. And they turned away from him. See, this is equivalent to you. Seriously, this is equivalent to you today, growing up in church, in a good one, where you hear the word taught, where you see God at work, where you see the lives changed, where you hear the stories of what God is doing, where God has even worked in your own life. I had to think about this when I was, when I was preparing for this. I was thinking about my own life and the number of times that God saved my little silly life. I mean, literally saved. In the times where I know, I know people said I should have been dead in my grave, and, and, and sometimes it's cliche, but I can tell you I know at least on two occasions that I should not be with you, that I can name. So I know the Lord has delivered from, and then I go, nah, Jesus, I'm good, I don't need you. I don't say it, but I live it. And he comes to the people here, and then he mentions three cities. He mentions three cities, but look at what he does. He says he begins to denounce the cities where you have to understand most, the predominant. These are Galilean cities because Jesus' ministry spanned for the most part in the Galilee region where most of his miracles, the demonstration of his works were done. What is a miracle? A, a miracle is that thing that is out of the and out of the ordinary for humanity. It should not happen. Healings can be, I'm not talking about the fake staged ones. I'm not talking about I had a headache and it's gone. That's not a miracle. I'm talking about it is something that is humanly impossible, would not happen at all within the realm of humanity except for the interruption of God. A miracle is when God interrupts humanity and he interrupts the natural process and flow of things. But why miracles? What is the point? Well, let me take you to as you're driving on the road. When you're coming down the highway and you're not sure where to get off as you're traveling somewhere, you're, you're, you're not quite sure. Take a city you're not, you're not familiar with. And as you're driving down the road, you're wondering where... And there it goes. It says to this city that way. It's a sign pointing to where you are needing to go and where you want to go. It is catching your attention. And so we have signs all along our roads and highways and different places. What are they doing? They are catching our attention. What a miracle does, first and foremost, yes, 
God reaches out and graciously helps suffering humanity. Miracles do that. When he heals, when he brings someone back from the dead, when he opens eyes that were blinded, when he unclogs the, 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 the ears of the deaf, when he heals a sickness that is incurable. Yes, but initially, but what that is intended to do, other than relieve the suffering, is to catch your attention. It is a sign. And what is it a sign of? It is a sign that God is at work, so listen up. Because there's usually something coming behind the miracle that God wants you to pay attention to. And so we see it all the time in Scripture. Jesus would perform a miracle. And if you look through the Gospels, there's always a story afterwards. I call these object lessons for my teachers in here. You, you know what an object lesson is. In that when you are trying to help kids understand a point, sometimes they see it better than they hear it. And a miracle gets your attention and lets you know God is present. Or the people that are standing in front of you are representing God. In the case of Jesus, God is standing in front of you in the flesh. And so when he would perform these miracles, it would tell them God at work. Listen up. God is present. Listen up. And then he would bring the message. When the apostles in, in those early days of the church would go and they would perform miracles, when they would perform them, it got people's attention. Let me tell you one miracle that happened on the day of Pentecost. You had these uneducated, unlearned Galileans. Okay, let's put it in today's. We had these uneducated. Don't be upset if you're from the country. This is just my, these uneducated country folk is what they would say. These people that hadn't been to school, they hadn't learned different languages, were here speaking actually known languages. Now, and Pentecost would bring in people to Jerusalem. It would swell up in hundreds of thousands. It would swell up because of the, because of the, festive, because of the Passover, and it would bring people of different languages to the city. And so God, and so what happened? The miracle was in the middle of the day, when you read Acts, all that happened, boom, fell on them, and they began to speak the wonders of God in different languages. So today that would be, you begin, so you came over from Russia, and you hear someone talking in Russian, you're like, I know that dude named Russian. And then you, 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 hear, you hear Greek, and, and, and then you hear Mandarin, and then you hear, you're like, hold on a second, what's, what's going on? And then the message comes. Got your attention, don't I? Now listen up. And so that's why gathering just for miracles, for miracles' sake, doesn't make any sense. I'm going to gather to see a miracle. Why? What you going to say after the miracle comes, dude? You going to bring a word that's going to cause me to listen? What is God saying? Because if all you're doing is miracles, you aren't doing anything. As a matter of fact, you're getting the attention. When a miracle is clearly intended for God to get the intention. God is the one who gets it, not you and I. And I don't stand up there and, 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 and praise the miracle worker unless that miracle worker is Jesus himself. And so he goes to us. I'm denouncing the cities where most of my work, my miracles were done. Why? Because the intention of the miracle and the intention of my mighty works on display did not happen. What was that? Repentance. Change. So he says, so here's what I wrote down because 
I actually want us to understand this. It says, look, repentance means to think differently after you've been encountered with something. It means to change your mind or your purpose. That's what that word repent means. It means a complete reversal of the purpose of your life and the way you think. Not, uh, oh, I think I want ice cream. Nah, I don't want it. No, that's not repentance. When he says, he says, you are changing the whole tone of your life. You reverse yourself completely. I repent and I change. I walk a different way as a result. But this group, they received it and there was no change. So in essence, they were just entertained because there was nothing that was different as a result of what they encountered. And so for us today, here's what I put down, for us today, you might have belonged to a church growing up that preached the truth of the Bible, cared for people, loved the community, had great music, but you still didn't change. And those were the kind of people that were being denounced by Jesus. They had every reason to accept him and they rejected him. And look at what he says. He says they did not repent and then he gets specific. He says in verse 21, woe to you. That's that doom and pity. Woe to you, Quotazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. There's an issue there that we're going to deal with that you guys may be picking up there. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades which is the Greek equivalent to Sheol or the grave. That, 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 that underworld there, because they didn't understand how, like we understand it today, that teaching hadn't been given, but it was, that, it was the afterlife underworld of uncertainty. And he says here, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. This is Jesus talking. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. But there's a couple of implications there that we have to deal with. But number one, he says he calls out these cities and says, and he compares them to Gentile, non-Jewish cities, which were traditionally their enemies. Tyre and Sidon to the north. These cities were their enemies. And no, they didn't repent. He said... He said, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if I had allowed, if I had allowed what you saw to be in front of them, they would have repented. They would have turned and they would have, and, 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 and they would have come to me. Here's that question that I know some of you are asking. Why didn't he do it? I thought Jesus, I mean, I thought God wanted everyone to come. Why didn't he do it if he knew that they would repent? I'm messing with some of us right now. 
Why would God do it? Number one, first thing that we need to remember with this when it comes to God, God owes salvation to no one. Please understand that. See, when we go out and we share the gospel and we say, oh, we'll come. Yes, but God owes salvation to no one. It is not the question of why didn't he save them. The question is, why does he save anyone? Understand when mankind rebelled against God, it doomed us. It didn't obligate God. It did not. And so salvation is owed to no one, which makes your salvation and mine that much more amazing and dynamic. This we have to remember, because I know, especially for us, if you've grown up in church, and I remember having to deal with this myself, if you've grown up in church and you've grown around hearing the word, it just becomes old hat. I'm tired of all this religious stuff and hearing all this and I don't know if it's really true or not. And you may be on the journey and struggling, but understand, boy, the precious gift that it is because God owes it to no one. And the fact that it's presented to you is a gift in and of itself. And the fact that you get a chance to respond to it is an even greater gift in in and of itself. But we have to understand, many, um, many of us, the reason we don't think is all that is because we don't understand it was never owed to us. That should cause you and I to bow quickly and go, oh my God, thank you that you've presented me with the gospel, that I can respond, number one. Number two, there is this thing, and I get this particular one, I get this from um, um, Dr. Um, D.A. Carson's commentary on Matthew, and I loved it. He says that there is this, there is this thought among philosophers called, um, oh gosh, I wrote it down. Let me just make sure because I'm, I'm going to forget it. Incidental, incidental knowledge. Incidental knowledge. And incidental knowledge is this. God knows what a person will do and would do had they had in, information. He knows. He knows what you will do if you get, just like he shared there. Jesus turns around and in his divinity says, Sodom would have repented if they had this. And so he says, so Sodom would not have gone on and been destroyed if this had been the case. He knew that. He knows what will happen if you received or did not receive. He will hold accountable. The amount of information, Bible, theology that those of us have, as, as, as Americans have been given privy to. He, he, there is an expectation there. Why? Because, and, and, because he knows what will happen if he gives. He knows what would have happened had he given. But it brings up a third point. And I'm going to show this in a second, that there are degrees of punishment coming. I know we don't think that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. I asked her to actually bring that up. We see it here, but if you go to Luke chapter 12, we're going to see it here for just a moment because, because Luke gives us that in these last few verses. Now, I would encourage you to read the whole context of that, which starts at verse 35. We don't have the time for that right now. But if you start at verse 47, which is where 
we're going to focus, we're going to land. He says here, as he is giving woes again to the Pharisees, verse 47 says, let see, 12, I'm in the wrong place. And the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. Now, you don't put in you don't put an adverb there if there's no difference. A beating is a beating. Now, I'll tell you that's not, I, I will tell you personally, a beating is not a beating. I've got a spanking before. And every time I've got my butt whooped, there's a difference. And so when the scripture says here that he will receive a severe beating, Number one, there's a degree. But then he goes on and says, sorry, verse 47. Let me get back to it. 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. See, the issue becomes when you place yourself in and around the word of God constantly, regularly, and you are hearing it, and you understand there is an expectation that is coming behind that. You're just not showing up to hear a good word and go home going, boy, I heard a good word today. Understand, there is an expectation. God is going to ask, what have you done with the word that I've given how have you responded from what you have heard? How has your life been different because of the word that I've allowed you to be introduced to you? He may say to some of us, do you know if I let so-and-so have what you had, the kind of spiritual giant they would have been? I didn't, but you did. I studied this this week, and that reminder, I was like, oh, Lord. And it's not for me to walk around scared. It is sobering. It is meant so that I take seriously what I take in. And then the last city that he mentioned, Capernaum. We know Capernaum was the home base for Jesus. That's where Jesus had his main headquarters, you want to call it that. That's where he came back to all the time. And so this city constantly had Jesus in it, but rejected him. Boy, once again, that's like you growing up around everything you need to be God's man and God's woman, and you're not. And God is saying, why? What's happening? Eventually, if you keep rejecting what God is revealing, denunciation is coming. Jesus said, if you reject me, I'll reject you. That's the scripture says. And it's not for us to be, this is, uh, Jesus is teaching here for us to understand. When I reveal it to you, he says, let it do something in you. Let it change you. I have a purpose for it, but if you keep going, mm, God says, one day I'm going to say, whoa. And I go, oh my goodness, God, what is it that I'm responsible for? Here's what I wrote down. 
Don't glory in the environment that had Jesus in it if you haven't been changed by it. This is not about name dropping. But woe may be coming. And so the issue for us is he says to them, look, you had everything you needed. Change with it. Whatever God provides, whatever he reveals, is so that it would cause repentance in our lives and that it would change us and that we would reflect what he was sharing. There are degrees. We, we know that we see that. There will be some who have been given very little and still have rejected what little they had. Yes, there will be consequences for it, but the consequences are not as grave as the person who has come face to face, who has been receiving it week in and week out, who's been hearing and who's been given it, taught it, and you still live. No. I go, wow, Lord, that is a great reminder for us that whatever you receive, you go back and say, okay, God, how do I live in spite of what I just heard? And again, we know this is not instant change and he's standing there with the Louisville slugger just waiting for you to not get it. No, it's over time process. God knows that we grow in degrees, that we grow in process, that there's maturity. You didn't reach the height that you were at in five days. And so we understand that your growth in Christ takes time. It may even take years. And so God knows that. And he's not waiting there ungraciously saying, you haven't grown in five months. I'm done with you. Because I think this place might be empty. As a matter of fact, you all be finding a new pastor if that was the case. See, the issue become God understands growth. He understands process. But he knows when people keep rejecting him. Or I'm not just saying I invite Jesus in my heart. You keep rejecting the word that wants to change you. There will come a point in time where God will stop wanting to change you. But then after he does that, the hope comes behind it. Because you, you do that and you go, man, I, Lord, this is, this is hard. There seems to be no hope. God always gives hope. Because the next part he goes is verse 25. At that time or sometime later, Jesus declares, the denunciation was here, here is the declaration now. Jesus declares, he says, I thank you, Father. He does it in the form of a public prayer. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or this was what you had planned. Let me help you out real quick. Jesus is not opposing education. That is not what that means. Jesus doesn't want you to be educated. He wants you to be just kind of some, some sort of knucklehead. He, he doesn't want you to learn anything. You just kind of, No, that's not what he's saying. When he talks about you have hidden these from the wise and the, and, the, and the learned, what he's saying is those that think that they know so much they don't need him. Those that are so smart, thank you, I don't need Jesus. I got this. God says, yes, because Christ has been hiding from you the truth of who he is because your heart is cold toward him. You won't ever see who Jesus is because you don't think you need him. And God says, down the line, he goes, 
you realize that wasn't a good choice. But who does he reveal? He says these things. What things? All the things that he's teaching, the things that he's showing, the things that he's revealing. He says, but that you've given them to little children. Little children in Scripture always refers to those who are dearly loved, but also those who are deeply dependent. They are people who are always, your little children are the same ways. Look at your children right now. They are totally dependent on you. I know at times they'll rear the head of, I got this, I can do it by myself. But most of the times they're looking at, look, they're looking at you for dinner. When's dinner happening? They're looking at you for more clothes. They're looking at you for money. They're looking at you to go places. They're looking at you for everything. Little children are dependent. As a matter of fact, on our tax forms, what do they ask you? How many dependents do you have? How many people are there depending on you? Little children. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. He says, Father, I thank you. This is actually, this is your will. That you have hidden it from those who think they are too smart to own up to who you are. And you have given them to those who realize their total dependence on you. And that is the formula for seeing who Jesus is and growing in Christ. Dependency. So I know when I get up on those days and I'm feeling great and I'm feeling myself, I got this. Lord, I don't need you for that. And I get up and I don't pray and I don't even seek the Lord. I don't need you, God. And I get up and I'm going about my day. As I said to someone once one time, I read this once, many of us live our lives as if we are kind of functional atheists, which means we, 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 we actually go about our lives and live our lives as if God doesn't exist because we don't seek him for anything. We don't, we don't ask. We don't look. I don't, I, don't, I don't govern my actions based on what God wants. It's if I want it, I'll, I, will, I will sanctify. Someone said this once years ago to me. I will sanctify my carnality, and, and I will call it a blessing from God when in, in all it really was was I wanted it, so I did it. And I go, man, I've lived like that way too many times, and I want to tell you. But what God is saying is, if you are truly dependent on me, it will show in your choices in life, in your direction in life, in where you are. It will, it will show. And so he says to them here, he says, look, thank you, Lord, that you've hidden it from those that are too wise for me and have given it to those that depend on me. And then he goes because then he goes, his declaration goes further that he is the great revealer of the father. You can't know God the father if you don't know Jesus is what he is saying. And either Jesus is telling the truth or he is a nut job. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. This dude is either out of his mind and is going to be proven, or he's telling the truth and is going to be proven. He says, no one knows the Son of God except the Father. And that knows means to know him fully and through and through. 
to understand him, to understand his purpose. He says, no one knows the son except the father. But then he flips it and he says, and the reverse is true. No one knows the father except the son. And boy, here's where, once again, I will throw it into you. And it is this whole mix. It is this tension between free will and predestination. We're not going to get into that today. That's for another time. It's probably for a Bible study that we can spend some time in it. But understand, there is always this tension in that earlier you saw him denounce people for making the choice, but it is also couched in the choice of God. That'll keep you up at night. He says here that no one knows the Father except the Son and whomever the Son chooses to reveal. Whoever Jesus chooses, and he said, well, how do you know who chooses? You don't, so don't act like it. So you can, well, well, well then, why do I witness to everyone? Because you don't know, nor should you know. That's not yours to know. If they respond to God, great, they're his. That's all you need to know. And if they don't, keep praying for you because you don't know. But the issue is, he says, whomever the, whoever the son chooses to reveal the father to, and so the gatekeeper is Jesus for the Father. That's what he's claiming. And as he does that now, he's telling him, listen, so because of that, he makes the last part of his declaration that we're very familiar with. Come to me. He says, because of that, don't be like those who are being denounced and those who think they're too smart to know me. He says, come to me because I am the gate to the Father. He says, come to me. And here's the thing. He says, all of you who are struggling, you got that backpack of your own life on and it is heavy. Y'all ever have a backpack on that's too heavy? You know, this was interesting. When I went to high school, I know I'm back in the Stone Age. When I went to high school, you could always tell the freshmen. You could always tell the freshmen. And I was told this, so it was kind of a help to me. You could always tell the freshmen because they were carrying their whole locker full of books around in their hand or in their backpack. You see them with a ton of books and they didn't know what to do with them. And you always saw the freshmen and you could tell the seniors because they didn't seem to have any books. <laughs> Be like, are y'all doing any work? But this whole deal of carrying around that weight on your own or the backpack, that's what the term is. It says, come to me, all of you who labor. Life is laborious. You are struggling with your labor and you are heavy burdened, laden. You have too much on. And Jesus says, I'll give you rest. He says, I'm going to change your backpack. Remember the day when they introduced you to your locker? Or when they told you you didn't need all these books, you can keep most of these at home? Or you figured out, I don't need to bring all these. And all of a sudden your bag is really light. People are like, are you going to school, dude? Are you going to work out? Well, no, 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 I, I know what I need. My load has been lifted. Jesus says, when you come to me, what I will do is I will lift the load of you trying to live life by yourself because it's a load. The reason you are stressed out is because you're carrying too much. You weren't meant to carry it. And so while you're busy saying you don't need me, you about to buckle under the weight of living for yourself. And I was like, whoa, Lord. That's for many of us. He said, you don't have to be there. 
Now, he's not saying I'm going to give you this carefree, skip-through life kind of experience. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that what you carry and you weren't meant to carry, something is going to fold and buckle as a result of all that you're carrying. It may be your sanity. It may be your physical health. It may be your family life. It may be your financial life. Something is going to buckle if you keep carrying that load that you weren't intended to carry. And so he finished. He says, come to me, all you labor and who are heavy laden or burdened, and I will give you rest. In him you find rest. He, and then he says, take my yoke upon me, because you're under somebody's yoke. I remember seeing this sign years ago. It was kind of funny, but I got some of the meaning. Somebody had this as a bumper sticker up in New York one time. It says, I'm a fool for Christ. Who's fool of you? And I was like, Ooh, whoa. You are responding to so I know you think you're your own man and your own woman. You are dancing to someone. You are dancing to something that is governing and that is driving you. Who is it or what is it? And Jesus says, come and take my yoke. Now, you know, back then, this is agricultural. The yoke is that apparatus that held oxen together. And what Jesus is saying is, couple yourself with me. The problem is you're coupling yourself with everything else. But he says, come, you know, take my yoke upon me, or you, and learn from me. And I have to ask this question, who are you yoked with, or what are you connected with and to, and who are you learning from? If it's other than Jesus about how to live your life, God says, that burden is heavy. He says, and learn from me, learn what? Now, this is talking about discipleship. This is the revelation that only comes from being connected to me. He says, learn from me. You're learning from a lot of other people, and you're learning from a lot of other things, but you're not learning from me. He says, because my yoke is easy. Now, he didn't say easy as in you're never going to go through anything. No. Compared to that load that you were carrying, he says, my yoke is easy. It is one that you'll be able to bear and handle because I gave it. And he said, and the burden that I put on you, the, 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 the load that you have to carry is light. So that, means now, so that tells me, if I am about to buckle underneath the load that I am carrying, either it's a load that I should not be carrying, or I'm not paying attention to the one that I'm supposed to be yoked with and I'm learning from. So are you about to buckle? Who are you learning from? What are you learning? And that yoke, whose is it? Did Jesus give it? Is he the one that coupled you up so that you'd be in discipleship with him? Or are you yoked with something, boy, that is killing you? He said, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he said, you will find rest for your soul. Are you restless today? She says, you don't have to be. Even on your hardest day, even when you are struggling, even when it seems like you can't handle it, Jesus says, in me is rest. He's not saying that I'll take everything away. That's not the promise. He says, in the middle of it, there's still rest. You'll be at rest. So when I am restless, I have to start looking at, Lord, where am I not seeing you? or following you. 
Where have I coupled myself with something that I should not be with? It doesn't mean that I'll never experience pain. No, you can experience pain and rest at the same time in Christ. You can experience trial and rest at the same time. You can experience upheaval and rest at the same time. God said, oh, y'all going to go through something. We just saw it early in Matthew. You're going to go through something. But you'll be at rest while you're doing it. You'll be this assurance of in whom you are. There'll be this assurance that I am couched in Christ, that I am guarded by God, that I am, that, that, that I am, <clears throat> wow, that I am fine because of the Father. And thus you can handle life. And thus you can handle life. So here's my question for us. Jesus' call, first of all, is a call to the broken and the burdened. Who or what are you tied to? And when are you learning from it or from them? And my earlier question is, what are you doing with the revelation God has allowed you to have of himself? What are you doing with the revelation God has given you of himself he's allowing what are you doing what are you allowing it to happen is it bringing about the change that he calls for or are you treating it as useless information or something of little value what are you doing with it your future depends on it 